All right, guys, welcome to the podcast. We got to jump right in to our charity out choice, and that's always Ohio Fish Rescue. We love Ohio Fish Rescue. We Hi, love Ohio them. Fish Rescue. What's up, guys? So, Ohio Fish Rescue is a fantastic not-for-profit organization that takes all of these wonderful fish that people decided were great in a tiny aquarium, and instead of throwing them in a lake, river, uh, or even down their toilet, they rescue them as a normal humane society would, but there's not humane society for fish. It's Ohio Fish, fish Rescue. So these guys make sure they either get suitable homes or keep them right there in their large facilities. Certainly go to their website, ohiofishrescue.com, and donate. They have t-shirts available. They have ways to donate directly through PayPal, uh, Patreon, or GoFundMe. But, you know, on top of giving your money, also give them a call. 216-773-407. Fantastic, Rob. Call and give them a little change, give them a little money, give them a little love, because these guys are doing the right thing. They're taking care of the hobby and making sure that these fish do not end up out into the wild, uh, into the lakes and streams. We're up here in northern Minnesota, and that is a nightmare when that happens up in our neck of the woods. Again, they didn't tell us to use a phone number, but we really want just a phone call reminding them, hey, you guys do a great job. That's uh, really got to point that out. Ohio Fish Rescue, let's kick that podcast. Welcome to the Aquarium Guys podcast with your hosts, Jim Colby and Rob Zolson. All right, guys, welcome to the podcast this week, I'm, I'm really hyped. We're getting great no- listener numbers. Fantastic listener numbers. Yes. Really? For only four episodes, no advertisement, and you didn't even get a Twitter made yet. Shame I mean, on you. I have not done a tweet, and I don't know what a tweet is, because I'm old Well, and dusty. Yeah, everything in time. You didn't know what a podcast is, and now we're, I know, we're I'm, cruising, man. I'm a professional, and people just, just go, wow, Jim, you are fantastic on the radio. Nobody knows. So I'm one of your hosts, Robs Olson, and my you know deliciously elderly partner over here is uh, that doesn't know how to tweet is Jim Colby. Jim Colby and Robs and I have been friends for years, and now we are taking it live on the air to our friends and fellow hobbyists. We're really excited to bring this to podcast, and today we have a special guest. Go ahead and introduce yourself, sir. Hi, I'm Greg uh, Bickle from Bickle Koi Farm in Toddville, Iowa. We're super excited to have you. We appreciate you taking the time. We were going to have you last week, but you were in a dire situation. You hit a deer, you said. That's right. I was driving home from uh, our farm. We have two two properties. We have a house where we sell koi retail, and then we have another farm that's about 25 miles away where we, r- we raise all our wholesale stuff. And on the way home, just smack dab hit, hit a deer, uh, eight-point eight buck head on immediately came to a stop and I had to wait and get rescued by some friends so and you're all right there's no injuries you're just yeah no injuries just uh my truck Lola is my truck's name is uh you know the insurance companies kind of run a little deal there where uh there's to me there wasn't much damage but they ended up totaling out my vehicle and so now I'm going to spend this next week uh vehicle shopping which is not my cup of tea so so what we're, what you're saying is we can ha- have the listeners call in to us and recommend names for your new truck. <laughs> That's right. I'm thinking Lala because this is a uh, you know it's 
it's a, a, a little bit of a LOL. Maybe I should call it LOL instead of Lola, just because uh, it's laughable that they didn't want to repair. All I needed was a new bumper, new grill, and one new headlight. So the fact that they total out a vehicle for that is uh, kind of laughable in my mind. But And now you need a new insurance company. Well, I maybe. We'll have to look <laughs> around and see if that's the case. So we're going to dive um, in to uh, an interview with you. And again, this episode, we want to really focus on Koi because if we're going to interview a Koi farmer, who better to get the information from? Not us, that's for sure. Oh, hell no. We've killed too many Koi. <laughs> so... Uh, before we can uh, really start in the interview, we just want to do a couple uh, items to clean up. Um, Adam, sure. I know you're listening, and uh, he, he said he would have his gear by this week, but uh, he was unavailable to, to join us. He's still setting up his gear, so he will be here, darn it, next week to uh, appreciate this podcast together with us. And secondly, you know, go to our website, um, aquariumguyspodcast.com. And on the bottom of the website, we have our contact information. There's our phone number directly on there. It is 218-214-9214. We're still waiting for people to call into the show. We have quite a few listeners for our first four episodes, but we're still looking for someone to call in with questions and air live on this show. Please call us. Jimmy's just begging for fan mail. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're getting a lot of uh, fan comments, but no questions. So I'll probably have to disguise my voice and call in next week. So I have, a, I have a quick story before we jump in. I was talking with one of my friends, and we were in the car, and we're talking about this podcast and how it's going so well. And, you know, I didn't really check all the stores because we're on so many different platforms. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio. But I, I have an Android phone myself. And I was just telling him that, you know, I wonder, you know, I, I was talking with a friend, and he said they were rated five stars on I, iTunes already. Oh, fantastic. And he pulls it up. I'm like, I don't know. I I don't think we're going to have any reviews or anything. He pulls it up. Oh, no, there's a review. And I just, I said to him, oh, it's going to be some like hipster, you know, LaCroix drinking, you know, cyclist or something like From that. From Wisconsin. Right. And he read it, and, you know, not to make fun of our, uh, the listener, but we have a fantastic review from uh, Vegan Cyclist 420. Thanks, Mom. That says on the podcast that we're doing a fantastic job he loves it and uh shout out i didn't even mean to stereotype but we had a great laugh in the car and you know those reviews mean a lot to us and thank you to uh the the vegan cyclist listeners out there you know what let's have him on next week and let's see what he's got to say we're gonna do a direct shout out to you sir you need to call into that number give us a call so we can have a question but all right let's dive in greg oh man you want to do like a quick introduction again? You, you said you own a koi farm in Toddsville, Iowa. Um, you know, right. let's start at the top. What what brought you to start farm, farming koi? Okay, so kind of we were talking about this a little bit earlier is guppies. So what got me started in koi was uh, my grandpa, my mom's dad, had a, a ten gallon tank. Well, growing up, he had it like a thirty gallon tank, but uh, when I got out of the military. He had a 10-gallon tank of guppies, and him and Grandma had to move into the nursing home, and so he gave me this uh, 10-gallon tank of guppies, and I started raising the guppies, and of course, live bears, and they're having all these babies. And subsequently, I killed them all because I wasn't paying attention to ammonia, and I didn't know all that yet. So um, we started off with the guppies, and then from there, I got uh, goldfish, you know, because you couldn't avoid koi at the time. Koi were super expensive. So uh, we used to go to the local quarry and catch. I take my boat 
and we'd go around with a big net and catch all these goldfish when they're spawning. Um, then I fell in love with koi. My wife and I went on our honeymoon in 1997, and I fell in love with koi at the Omaha Zoo. They had a big pond, uh, what they call Monkey Island, and they had all thousands and thousands of large koi uh, there. And, and from there, uh, I started acquiring koi, and, and it just blossomed from there. That's fantastic. So a quarry, where exactly were you at that you could just scoop goldfish out of the wild? Right. You know, we were talking earlier, too, um, about Ohio Fish Rescue, you know, uh, when you first came on. And, uh, you know, most people, if they don't have a place that will rescue the fish, they'll dump them somewhere. And a popular place to dump them is in a, um, either retention ponds or quarries, old quarries. So there was an old quarry probably, I don't know, 45 minutes from my place. And tons and tons of goldfish. And I mean, probably a five acre quarry. And it, it had to have thousands and thousands of goldfish. In. So we said, hey, we'll go. And we actually first started off as Greg's Goldfish Farm. And so as you look at my website, it's just Bickle.com. Because I, I'm, I may not be Bickle Koi Farm someday in the future. We may be Bickle's Guppy Farm or Bickle's Guinea Pig Farm or Bickle's Birdhouses. Who knows what will be in the future. So it's just kind of a simple web address. But we went there and we caught all kinds of these goldfish. The best way to catch any fish I found is when they're spawning. They're pretty oblivious to what's going on. You can just run in, scoop them up in a big net and catch them that way. And we were very successful catching them that way. And we would bring them home and then we could resell them or uh, breed them and do it that way too. But How many would you get a, a, on an average day when you went out there? Oh, probably 30 to 35, 40. And what size? You know, it's like it, if, if I knew they were spawning at home, I knew they'd be spawning there. You know, you'd kind of get to learning uh, when, when fish spawn in the spring, full moon and all the different things that go on. So we would go and, and we would get quite a few and bring them home in Rubbermaid tubs, you know, running bubblers and running all these Rubbermaid tubs. And we thought we were, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread, catching all these goldfish, which now goldfish are pretty much worthless. Everybody gives them away, uh, you know, except for, except for the fancier uh, breeds, Arandas and, and those other things. But that's fascinating quarries yeah there's not a whole lot of quarries by us but again our bodies of water are pretty uh pretty common and where we're at in minnesota we're right in the heart of the lake so we our, our bodies of water we don't want to want to touch right. much but that uh right that's fascinating so did you you, you got Another these goldfish th and you bred them is that what it, what it was right yeah we bred we uh we bred goldfish and sold them and, and but then once uh that was just in, in the start you know in, in like 1995 I, that was way back. It's hard to remember back then. But uh, and then once I went on my honeymoon and got hooked on koi, then um, we actually went to the local zoo and in Des Moines. And they had koi there. And we worked a deal with them that we'd give them a donation. And they'd let us just, they'd throw food in. And whatever we could catch up, we could buy for 20 bucks a piece. Holy and that was back when, yeah, big koi were uh, were very expensive back then. And I, I caught many nice specimens, and I made a huge net. Like, it was probably five foot across. I sewed it out of a big seine, five foot across and three feet deep. And then we get two nets, and we just, uh, we, what we call we clamshell. When you take two nets to catch a fish, and you just kind of snap them both together, we call that, like, clamshelling. 
you come up with your own terms when you're catching fish anyways but and we would catch them and bring them home once again in rubbermaid tubs and and then um, breed those and uh, it wasn't until I went to Japan in 2004 that uh, I got some really good koi to use as breeding stock because you're limited with with koi that breed flock spawning and they haven't been controlled the genetics is are pretty bad it's pretty weak so uh, when we went to Japan in 2004 then we picked out some really good um, some really good breeding stock and uh, that helped tremendously um, we had um, before that I had purchased two other fish from a guy in Davenport they were show fish and I think that was the first pair of koi that I bred with uh, it was 900 bucks for the pair and it was a three color fish for the people who know koi it was a sake male and a showa female and we produced really nice looking fish with those and I said you know I've got to get better breeding stock so then uh, then we went to Japan and picked out a bunch of stuff but uh, as things would go, some of the fish died. There was a big earthquake there two days after we left, and some of the fish that we picked picked out died. So uh, we didn't get to bring those back. But otherwise, we were very successful breeding uh, those fish. I think I got like maybe 11 fish total for maybe around 1600 bucks, And um, we were very successful breeding those fish. And to this day, I've only got three of those original fish left. You know, uh, most, of them, most of them were hatched in 2002 so they'd be like 17 years old now and and that's quite a ways to breed uh to breed a fish every year uh, especially a female uh to get that many years out of a female is is pretty remarkable so so you got you got your money back on all that oh yeah we got our money back for sure yeah that that was that was good um that was a good um investment and the last year we lost those original two koi that I had purchased. We lost those last year. Like one was the male was twenty and the female was twenty one. For and breeding stock, that's she, incredible. For breeding stock, and she had bred all the way up until she was like eighteen, and one year she had burst an ovary, like completely out of her body. She she just ulcered up and then big thing popped out of her body. And I thought, okay, she's going to be done breeding. She's going to die. She healed up just fine, and then the next year she bred from the other ovary, so she'd only breed uh, every other year after. So it was like I got one more breeding out of her, and that was it. But they produce super nice babies. So uh, really, uh, the the quality of the breeding stock uh, it, it definitely it definitely matters. Like uh, in Japan, a breeder will focus on just one breed of of koi, uh, a, a white and red, a kohaku, or a sake, or a show, or something. But in America we have to produce a lot of different varieties. And so we're not really able to focus on quality in one specific breed because if you just bred that, you wouldn't have enough business to keep, to keep going. Yeah, I, I find that, that, that here in the U.S., everybody, uh, like the pet stores, the majority of the people are just ordering the assorted koi. Is that what you're finding true also? R right, yeah, the assorted koi. And now the, the market's really leaning towards butterfly koi. Absolutely. Which I'm not. Uh, I'm not a real fan of butterfly koi. Um, I, I like the traditional koi, but so we started uh, with butterfly koi. So, so you're talking about rescues. Uh, we go back to this Ohio fish rescue, and over the years we've done uh, rescues. Also, we've got a, a, a website. Uh, a part of our website has a rescue page on it. So if somebody's koi do need rescue, uh, and we can't find anybody in their area, it just depends on where they're at. People call us from all over the country. Like if they were in Ohio, I would send them to Ohio Fish Rescue. If they were in 
Um, Minnesota, I would find people up in Minnesota that I knew, like Rob's and anybody else. But um, so uh, over the years with rescues, we would rescue people's koi. And one batch of fish that we rescued, there was a big, ugly, orange and black spotted butterfly in that. And my space here at home was limited. We didn't have the second farm. We were still a small operation. And so we had um, a deal worked out with a nursery, a greenhouse, uh, the next town over. And they would let us use their pond. It was was about uh, 40 foot wide by 80 foot long. They would let us use their pond to breed koi. And I would provide all the food for the koi. And they would feed them and take care of them, take care of the water quality. And then I could harvest them uh, when I needed to. And so we threw those rescue fish in there the first first year and they made so many nice babies and that butterfly gene came out the butterfly gene seems seems to be I'm not a geneticist and I haven't studied koi genetics very well but it seems to be pretty dominant that I get a lot of the babies 50% or more seem to be butterfly and but yet the colors seem to come from the straight fin koi and so we weren't getting that ugly orange and black fish we were getting more of the shiny metallics and some other things so so that worked out so that's how we started off with um with uh butterfly koi uh, a few years back and then um sometimes a customer will come in and they'll have a fish that's gotten too big from them for them and i'll take that fish back and i might use it as breeding stock anytime we get rescue fish in we don't ever sell them we just give them away to people uh or or we you know we stock them in somebody's pond that's looking for fish about a month ago, I went to a fish rescue. I got a call from, from somebody, and they said, hey, we're moving out of our house. Can you come rescue our fish? I'm like, yeah, great. I'll be there Saturday. Couldn't make it Saturday. Went over there Sunday. They were completely moved out, gone, and it was a little 150-gallon preform pond in a trailer court. So I was like, okay. They had a nice filter system on it, a lot of plants and this and that. There was over two dozen koi in that pond that were I, you know i thought i'd go there i was stocked up with tubs uh i started catching these fish out loading them in my tanks and then i caught something that looked like because i'm not a tropical fish guy i'm like oh crap that's a that's a, a piranha <laughs> and i was like whoa what's this you know it wasn't shaped like a koi at all and i was like god watch my fingers and uh, anyway, I threw it in, the, threw it in the, the tubs. I was like, okay, I'll figure out something to do with this. That wasn't the only one. I that, caught two more. That's why they call you so, old three toes. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was, and I texted the guy. I was like, okay, uh, I got all your koi, but I am missing a finger from that piranha. And he texted me back. He's like, no, it's a paku. Ah. So I, I harvested. So out of this pond, I took two dozen big koi. They were probably 14 inches. And then three paku. So I call a local a local aquarium guy. He he cleans aquariums for a living. His whole basement is aquariums stacked upon stacks. So I called him up and he came and got these paku and he was super happy with them. However, I could have probably used them to eat the algae. I don't know much about them. So for those that eat are listening algae. in the podcast, pakus are again another South African variety. They're very similar looking to a red-bellied piranha. They have a lot of the indications and, uh, and markings. And they're invasive species in a lot of different places in the world that have been thrown into the wild either on purpose or by accident. And the difference is is they're really omnivorous. They will eat anything. And they have very human-like um, molar teeth Jaws. that will grind, but will also crush anything that they, uh, you know, snails. They they're actually, they they're actually... very, very... Uh, adaptive to their environment they'll eat acorns 
if acorns fall out of the water, they'll eat acorns. Wow. Very strong. Yeah, actually, people people might not know that koi have teeth as well in the back of their in the back of their mouths that they grind up against a hard palate. The paku actually it, can get about the size of a, a tire as well. The, right, and I, I apologize. One of the biggest uh, ones they found is actually in the Mississippi River. Someone left and they uh, caught it around Minneapolis, and it was uh, one of the biggest ones on record. And that's what I was wondering is the the temperature range that that paku would have went uh, because in our in our indoor fish building which is heated we could have put it in there. Uh, and I do have a problem. We get a uh, we get this algae this uh what they call it carpet algae it might be about uh about inch to two inches long and it's just like shag carpeting that grows all over the rubber liner that we have in, all, in our ponds and all the building and now it's getting so thick that it's starting to clog up the filter systems and the drains so i was like thinking that might be a good animal to go in there and eat that and get rid of that so they uh they definitely do a, a job that uh, hair algae is uh, pretty common in a lot of uh, scenarios. We were just talking in right. another episode of what they do for aquarium treatment. So there's that and also blackbeard algae. That's much shorter but bushier, um, dark colored algae. And uh, I'd recommend you know just uh, from another fish person to another American flagfish if you can so uh, so have them. They sure. don't necessarily last the winter, but they do a fantastic job of mowing that stuff up. Sure. Uh, another thing that'll eat uh, hair algae is tadpoles. Tadpoles are great at eating eating algae. So. Jimmy's favorite. Oh man, I love tadpoles. <laughs> not yeah. e- so not- does my turtle. <laughs> That's kind of how we I feel a, about them too. We have a cycle around here at the koi farm. Uh, the predators that we find in the ponds. Usually every year we have uh, turtles, uh, snapping turtles that show up, and uh, they get caught right away, of course. And then I put them in a uh, a tank. And they get fed uh, frogs and tadpoles and anything else that I, uh, unwanted in the ponds. Or any particular koi that dies that day? It, yeah, any particular koi. Like, it, it's it's pretty typical when koi spawn. Um, sometimes uh, a female will die, whether her she's got egg impaction and the eggs won't come out. Or um, uh, tumors. We get tumors quite often. And I've talked to several people about that to see if it's something in the food um, maybe it's the fact that we're two miles from Iowa's only nuclear power plant uh, <laughs> might have something to do with it. Oh man, what do they glow? Yeah. The, are they are these glow koi? Because we could have a new the, market. They're not glow koi. If I could produce <laughs> glow koi, I'd probably have a lot bigger market than I do have now. But um, anyways, uh, we get tumors quite a bit, and as um, we keep a snapping turtle, and snapping turtle liver is my favorite delicacy. However, I did have, uh, tonight for dinner, I did have alligator meat, which is probably my, my most favorite meat to eat. You were, you were making Jimmy jealous, snacking on it before the episode started. and uh, That's right. He's still uh, right. shaking his head, I, just I still love gator. Every time we go down south, I get gator and grits. That's my grits. Now, listen, the, the best grits that I ever had was I was in the military, and we had uh, some guys from Louisiana that were our cooks, and they made the best grits. And I have since tried to have grits everywhere that I have ever gone that would serve grits and have not come up with the same quality of grits that I had down in Louisiana or down in, in, when I was in the military from that Louisiana cook. There, there's something there. See, I went to a Waffle House with Jimmy going to Florida, and that was some stuff. That, when you walk in, they'll just give you lemonade. You didn't even order it, right? Then you try to get whatever they want, and you didn't order grits, and yet a bowl shows up. And you're not about to complain. You just eat it and realize that it's the most delicious breakfast food you can have 
the, the first time I was right. down down in Florida, and and they gave me grits, and I was not familiar. And she goes, "Oh, are you a Yankee?" And I go, "Excuse me." And she goes, "Are you from up north?" I went, "Yeah." And she goes, "They're good, sweetheart. Just eat them." <laughs> I said, "Okay." It uh, depends on how people make them because it, it, I would say it's it's like oatmeal. Multi meal, you know, my wife it, says. Yeah, multi meal. It, it depends on the consistency uh, of how uh, they make them. Uh, you know, actually, I have no sense of smell, so I don't I don't taste food like other people taste food, and that's one reason why I can be an excellent fish farmer <laughs> is I can't smell the fish. You don't know when something went bad, huh? No, I don't know when something went bad. I, I can't tell when the ammonia is in the air. Uh, you know, um, my ra- my grandpa used to raise rabbits, and rabbits produce in in close quarters. They produce a heck of a lot of ammonia. My dad and that just it just gag you. My dad commercially raised rabbits when I was in high school, and we sold about twelve hundred a week to a uh, restaurant type place up in northern North Dakota. And we sold rabbits upon rabbits upon rabbits. And to this day, if I see a rabbit, I, I just want to run it over. I'm sorry, rabbit lovers. Oh, I'm sorry, rabbit lovers. I love, I love rabbit. Uh, we used to raise rabbit for butcher when I was a kid. And my grandpa raised them. Um, he would actually take them and he would, he would butcher them, grind them into burger, and sell them to the local hy store. I'm not sure how. How do you get away with that, that these days? Yeah. So I think that at this very that was, moment, that was yeah, 30 years ago. <laughs> I think at this very moment, we have now lost the vegan cyclist as our fan. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's probably just thinking, oh, it's just a that's a great idea to why you should be a vegan is you don't have to talk. You didn't about have rabbits. to hear a rabbits, gators, or liver. Now I only eat now I only eat free range animals. Uh, I try to only eat uh, except for the uh, alligator meat, which we have to buy, but. Um, we typically only eat free range meat, whatever I can go hunt and shoot. So at least I'm doing my part anyways to uh, not make so much methane in the environment. Well, that and you got to be careful with that free range. You're buying a nuclear plant, remember? <laughs> right. We are by the nuclear plant. The deer grow really big racks around here. And when you hit them with your truck, apparently they cause enough damage to create a totaled out vehicle. Well, that's why. He's still angry, isn't he? I Absolutely. Can tell. Mass, mass squared. Uh, they just must have a little bit of plutonium and those antlers must weigh him down a little bit. We, we I did the sh- calculations. It was like 16,000 foot pounds or newtons or something, whatever the, the, the website told me that was uh, 150 pound deer hitting a vehicle at 60 miles an hour. It was enough to stop me cold. So, Well, that's why, see, the insurance company just cut you a check and totaled it. They didn't want to deal, deal with radioactive deer on your, on your bumper. That's right. That's right. We don't want to have to. We, we ran the, the thing on that. And, no, no, and then uh, it's, been, it's been raining. Uh, so we haven't had rain. You know, as a fish farmer, obviously, we want water for our ponds. And we haven't had a lot of rain in Iowa here this summer. It's been really dry, and the ponds have been going down. And then finally last night we got three inches of rain. And I woke up last night at two o'clock in the morning and I just sensed something was wrong. There's there's something wrong. I went out to the fish house. I neglected to put on any clothes other than my uh, boxer briefs, I guess. Yeah, give us the visual, like please. Give us so the visual. visual. What color were your boxers? It's three, it's three o'clock in the morning. I'm wearing black and gray striped boxer briefs. Sweet. I grab my umbrella and the light, and I go out to the fish house, and Did- my pump house, where all the pumps, these are dry vault pumps, so they're not meant to get wet. They are flooded. 
because the gutter on the back of the building got three inches of rain last night in, in, a, in a period of about an hour and a half, two hours. And the gutter on the back of the building fell off and all the water went behind the building, went under the building and flooded this pump out. So I get my sump pump on. I pump out all the water. Then I go to the garage. And I'm still in my underwear, of course. <laughs> and it's dark. But we're out in rural Iowa, so nobody cares. Uh, we don't have street lights out here. I get some wire. I go to the back of the building. I wire everything up together and finally go to bed. So that's what my night was like. No sleep. Running around in my undies. Wiring electrical items standing in in water. Sounds like a good time. So he'll be at the next Barnes & Noble for his signature, uh, you know, first edition of Fifty Shades of Koi. (laughs) Right, Fifty Shades Shades of Koi. So I'm operating on no sleep today, basically. So if I'm a little loopy, that's probably why. You fit right in. Well, we, we appreciate that, Greg. And just to get back on track here. Oh, yeah. So I met you. I met you actually from the Upper Midwest Koi Show. Uh, they have That's a. Right. They try to do a show once a year, and this last year they were unable to. Sadly, the uh, venue um, was full up on space, and our. I think we found a new spot for this next year, but I still got to meet you there, and you had quite a selection of different koi uh, to choose from, and it was uh, it was a real treat. I got to learn uh, a lot of different things, but the biggest thing I learned is. Um, the food that you choose to grow out, because these koi people don't really understand how koi grow. So koi can really grow up to you know 36 inches plus, depending on the variety of koi. And again, they have no stomach; it's just all intestines, so they right. can eat every hour on the hour. So feeding is a real um, thought process with a lot of people. And you know, how do you feed koi? Right. So. You know, it it really the the key to growing koi the way we do it the natural way is getting green water. Green water is the ticket to growing koi because with green water you produce uh, water daphnia and all the other zooplanktons, and you have to get that those populations up to what I call critical mass, to where you've got enough of that food available that when the koi hatch out that, that uh, there'll be enough there to feed them. Uh, the problem with the live food is that if they do get to such a mass, uh, I've actually had in a, in a pond, I've had probably, uh, if you were to scoop out, I, I got a big net made of uh, cheesecloth that my wife made, and you can get maybe 50 pounds dry weight if you were just to scoop it up and take the water out of Daphne in a pond, in that, in that size of a pond, let's say 25,000 gallons. And the Daphne themselves will start to produce ammonia that they, they will be so many in the water and the oxygen levels go down. So sometimes you can lose a population like that, it can crash. But uh, when koi start to eat, if there's enough live food, they prefer live food. And when they start to eat, they call it gut loading, is they'll start eating so much that their belly will actually split open and their intestine or their gut will hang out of their body. And they just keep loading and loading and loading and they can consume as much as possible because they grow so fast that within two days they've outgrown that and their belly readjusts. You know, using my knowledge, uh, to use Daphnia and, and other live foods to feed koi, my daughter recently got uh, some gup, uh, some guppies. So I go out and I catch them some Daphnia. We still have some cultures out there, and I feed feed the, the guppies. Oh, they really love that. You watch them chase around, mosquito larvae. Uh, apparently, I killed one. <laughs> my daughter wasn't too happy with me because it seems it, I, 
I said, well, let's just see how much they want to eat. You know, koi, the more you feed them, the faster they grow. Apparently, guppies, the more you feed them, the faster they die. <laughs> my, daughter, my daughter says, what's that hanging off the, off the guppy? You know, uh, normally a koi will have um, like a poop trail hanging yes. off, out of its butt as it swims around. And the guppy did that. I was like, okay, it's getting plenty to eat. It's going to grow fast. No, and it died the day next day. So it was probably not too good. I tested the water. Everything was good. But, but apparently you can't give uh, guppies uh, that much food. They, their bellies were pretty distended. So, so again, but anyways, guppies yeah, do have a stomach. So that, uh, again, it's a very rare situation for people to overfeed. Generally, the first thing that happens when you overfeed anything is the ammonia will get your fish. But in situations right. like yours, that's extremely rare. They'll eat themselves to death, and that almost never happens in the uh, in normal aquarium trade. But with koi, after you get them past that size, you know, wh what do you do to feed after adolescence? Right. So after adolescence, we start off, uh, the food we use is Aquamax. It's not a koi food. It's made by Purina. And it's got um, the, the protein levels. They start off with a, uh, a powder and then they go they they go through um aquamax 100 200 300 400 all the way up to 600 and the pellets get larger and larger incrementally as you go and the protein on the smaller stuff starts off at 50 percent uh i think for the 100 200 300 and then once you get to the 500 the protein goes to 41 percent and the primary ingredient in it is fish meal and uh the koi seem to like that it takes them a while to get used to um, when they're, they, koi really want to eat live food. And if you try to switch them over, it takes about four weeks. They get to a certain size. After about four weeks, there's no amount of Daphnia. They've, they've eaten every bit of live food that you can give them. And you've got to get them onto something else. So you start them off with the powder. And sometimes to get them to eat the powder, I'll take, uh, snails. There'll be a lot of, uh, little snails in some of the tanks that I have around. Uh, typically in, in the filter pits, they eat the koi's poop. So I grab those snails and I'll grind them on a stone just between a couple bricks. I'll stone grind them. I'll mix that in with the, the powdered food and that'll really give it some kind of taste that the koi will really go for. Uh, also, when I do that, um, we get kind of an algae that grows on the side of the ponds. It's rubber line liner ponds. We get some kind of a just a... Um, algae or might even be a bit of a bacteria I'm not sure what grows on there I'll take a, a, a piece and I'll scrape that and the koi will come over it might even be like um, uh, I can't think of the word right now the algae that they like so much oh, spirulina algae, algae. it might be a little bit of spirulina in it but it, it's yep. it's growing on the sides of the tank I'll scrape that off and sometimes if that's been in the sun like the pond level goes down and comes back up scrape that off they'll just come around your fingers and just gobble that up so usually uh, that's what I have to do to get them onto pellets. Once you get them on to, grow, to, to eating pellets, then it's just easy. You just keep feeding them and feeding them and feeding them. And depends on how many fish you have as to how many pellets you need to go through uh, a day. And, and uh, this year we had a tremendous hatch. We got three ponds that are a quarter acre in size. And you never know, a lot of this food you have to order it ahead of time. You never know, do I need four bags of food or do I need 40 bags of food? And I was super low on food. We had such a tremendous hatch this year that uh, the other thing with live, the, the live feed, sometimes less is more. When you have less koi, you'll actually get a better result. If you have a pond, let's say 25,000 gallons, 
and you try to raise 3,000 koi in it, you'll get a better result than if you try to raise 20,000 koi. Because you'll get 20,000 to 100,000 koi will hatch out from, from one spawn, from a, a female or two females. And if there's not enough live food, the koi will eat each other. You'll actually see a, a koi, two koi from the same size. One will just come up and grab the other guy by the tail, and he'll just start gobbling him up to him tail. And you'll see a fish swimming around with another fish in its mouth. That's crazy. We don't really get these right. perspectives in our uh, our hobby uh, uh, trade at all. So this is this is fascinating. It is very fascinating. Well, and you'll see guppies will turn around and eat their own offspring sometimes too. If you know, sometimes you should have them in a cage so that the babies can swim out or whatever. But uh, so if you have too many koi hatch out and not enough Daphne, it's hard getting that balance. I do I do raise brine shrimp on occasion. I have a couple cans of it around, and when I say I raise brine shrimp. I raise it in those big, like, five-gallon water jugs where I use, like, tablespoons, three or four uh, tablespoons per jug to grow out, and that would be one one serving. So uh, we try not to do that because that's an expensive route. I like to do it the other way. Um, the other thing about live food is if if Daphne scents fish, they, they, must have a, they must have something where they sense a fish is... Um, uh, hormones or something they will molt and create egg casings and die and you can lose the whole batch that way too so sometimes you don't want to put the the fish in too late or too soon to make the eggs hatch you get the daphnia population going and then you put the eggs in at just the right time so that's what i've learned over the years is getting that natural food and then like i said once we go to that we switch uh, the typical food that we feed is probably like almost two millimeters and um, that's a real good food. It's like 50% protein, almost 50 cents a pound. And uh, that's a real good food that we feed. And we probably went through, in, in, in a quarter acre pond, we might have 100,000 fish in that pond. And we can go through a five pound, let's see, a five gallon bucket a day is, is not even close to feeding them Jeez, as much as that, they should eat. Yeah. That's incredible. Normally, normally when you... A Japanese breeder or any kind of breeder, if you get so many fish hatch out, like I said, less is more. So you need to cull down, cull down the herd and, and just pick out the best koi and grow them to their potential rather than trying to grow everything. But the logistics of trying to catch 100,000 fish and sort through them, and the manpower that it takes is a lot of times uh, you can't do that on a regular basis. I mean, it's just there's a lot of work in that. So I typically will just let them grow to their first year uh, and then the next spring we'll harvest the pond and that's when we'll sort through them. This, this is still, we, we sold, um, up until about two years ago, we've been selling koi now for breeding, selling for 20 years. This is our 20 year anniversary. We've sold every fish we could produce, uh, for about the first 16 to 17 years. So this will be the first time that I've had so many fish that now I don't have buyers for everything and I'll have to really start sorting things out and, and focus a little more on on uh, the quality of the fish. We always try to focus on the quality, but focus a little more on the quality. And we do find markets um, like people who are looking for uh, feeder fish in the aquarium industry. People who have turtles or or they're just looking for a lower grade koi. We do find a market for those koi. I try not to destroy any fish. I always try to find a market for them. Somebody will want them. Uh, j just that way, uh, you know, everybody has a chance. I try to make koi affordable for everybody 
you know, Greg, I, I had a quick question uh, that's been in but my that's mind. What, that's, anyways, that's, that's what we use for the food. It's Aquamax by Purina. Our Purina dealer is just fantastic. The only problem is they sell it in 50-pound bags. So uh, we typically will rejug it, and uh, I recycle jugs. We go through a lot of uh, uh, lemonade, and uh, I recycle the lemonade jugs, and we, we rejug that into two and a half pounds to three and a half pound jugs, and we resell it at the Koi shows, and we do ship, ship that food sometimes to people. Uh, it's a really good food. It's a good, high-quality food. It's not a koi food, uh, but, it, it, you know, koi are just a fish. They don't need a, a food that says koi specifically. But Well, again, you're also um, raising them at a very young age, so they need a lot of protein. You know, other right, yeah. other older koi, they, you know, have a different type of uh, diet. Again, they're a carp, so you're getting them that high-protein age. And my big question is, from that egg, again, you're in Toddsville, Iowa, so you do have hard winners. So from right, that... Yep from that hatch you know when is that hatch how long until you know a dormant season would go and how what does that growth look like from egg so, to fish yeah how much growth do you get in right that, in that first year right so the growth growth can vary based on how many fish you have but let's let's go with let's go with best growth in in, in a best case scenario we could do a we could do a spawn sometimes we are in iowa sometimes uh we never have ice on our ponds this was the first year ever since i've had a pond 25 years that we've had ice on the pond after um saint patrick's day usually the pond is completely thawed out around saint patrick's day on or before a few days before um, we have gotten spawns before in april we typically look for a full moon the spawn to happen around a full moon if the temperature's right but let's say we got a spawn going um in may is pretty typical for most of our spawns and that fish will hatch in three days to four days. Uh, if the Daphne is good, that fish will be an inch long in probably three to four weeks. And once it starts eating pellets, I can have it by September, September, October, I can have that fish almost to nine inches. That's incredible. Uh, so, yeah, that's very incredible. It, and live food is, is the key. They'll eat pellets and and the other thing is too we don't really if we were wanting to grow a fish if we were wanting to super grow a fish like like let's say um there's you're growing fish per, for production which you grow them at kind of a, a slower pace than if you were to grow a fish for example if i see a fish that's breeding stock worthy uh like one of the fish that we we have is our famous fish is called the shochiba is uh a unique fish, most unique fish in the United States. There's not another one like it. That fish, I, I realized from a very early size, when it was about two inches, that it was a special fish. So I pulled that fish, I put it in the building, I put it in a tank, and I grew it. And when I grow that fish for potential, then I feed that fish as much as, as, much as it can eat nonstop. I go by the tank every hour, it's got to have pellets in there waiting for it. Optimum water quality and all that. And that fish could even hit 12 inches uh, in six months. They say carp can grow at an inch a month, but uh, we can we can grow them faster than that on live food because they will eat more aggressively on live food, uh, especially than they would on pellets. You know, pellets they get full. And the other thing about dry pellets, when a fish chews, this is one thing if you want to help your fish to grow faster is um, soak those pellets. You can even soak them in things that uh, give them additional vitamins like orange juice or some other things. But soak those pellets ahead of time. 
koi do have a hard pellet that they can grind their food up, but that takes moisture to, to get the food soft and grind it up. Then when it gets into their gut, it's also using moisture. So if you soak the food ahead of time and make it soft, the koi will be able to digest it a lot better and it'll be a lot less work on the fish when it's eating it. So that's one other thing you can to do to help them to eat. Normally a fish will come up, a koi will come up, it'll eat a pellet and it'll run away. And if, if the pellet's a certain size, because it's got to go and it's got to grind it up and get it going through the system before it can grab another one. So it can only have so much room in its mouth to work those pellets. So that's a that's just kind of a tip to, to get people to help their koi to grow. And then um, we do leave our koi outside for the winter, which they do grow some during the winter. They will eat some algaes if it's available. But special fish, fish that are pick of the litter or future breeding potential, we'll bring those in the building. And the building is heated to uh, almost 80 degrees and the water stays around 70 and uh, those fish will be able to grow all season. So by the end, by the time the fish has turned one years old in, in May of the following year, we would call those jumbo tosai where they could be uh, 12 to 14 inches long at, at that rate. So they do grow very fast. Um, the other trick to growing them fast like the Japanese do is they put females only uh, in a pond. Uh, and, and the problem with females is uh, when they start to smell a male, once they get to a certain size, they'll start developing eggs and they'll start wanting to spawn. And sexual maturity really slows down a koi's growth. So uh, when you're growing a koi, if you can keep the females in their own pond, they don't smell males, they won't develop eggs, they'll spend more of their energy growing rather than developing eggs and want to spawn. So I've heard uh, that I same thing. I apologize. I've heard that same thing no, from a lot good. of uh, um, show... Uh, show specialists that's generally where i come from the side of the hobby is going to other places like midwest uh, koi show and yeah keeping the females together and they also have electronic feeders that they have for special tanks either for one individual koi or feeders all around to give them a diverse set and just like you said softness matters so they'll uh, you know right. purposely prep their koi food and it gives them every 30 minutes a, a batch of food and it disappears. It's really amazing that they get fed on a clock. Right. And, and like I said, the trick, tricking them with the snail, with the snail, um, uh, juices or, um, the other thing, once koi go from Daphnia, the next larger size food, uh, that's available is a scud shrimp, which is oh, about a quarter inch long. And they're, they're kind of a neat little shrimp that, uh, eats plant matter. But they're they're really hard to to grow in in large numbers and harvest them. However, in our in our other in our other farm that's 25 minutes away, that one we can go there and you just sift a net through the sand and through some some weeds, and you can get uh, you can get quite a few of those to feed koi too. But uh, uh, any kind of live food. Uh, when I'm prepping my breeders to breed in the spring, the night crawlers will come out. Um, the night crawlers will come out in the first spring rains and they'll spawn. You'll see them all over the blacktop roads. A lot of people see night crawlers out. Um, I, I go out and I collect as many night crawlers as I can and I feed those to my koi, uh, just pounds and pounds of them uh, in, in the weeks preceding a spawning to um, give them a lot of live food and good, good high quality protein. When they, when they eat a night crawler, all that comes out when they're done digesting that is the like a skin uh, they digest there's very high digestibility in nightcrawlers for koi so 
anytime you can feed them live food, they're going to feed more aggressively on that and grow faster. So what's the uh, approximate age? Again, you're breeding the koi. Do you have any koi that you have that don't breed and you've grown out? In your experience, what, is, what do you see for age? Um, if, yeah, for age, the oldest koi we had was, uh, was 20 and 21. And those were breeding animals, uh, obviously. But uh, the one that I have now, um, males, males typically will do a lot better breeding. Uh, the, the oldest male I think now that I have is, is 17 and he's still very active in breeding. Doesn't, um, you know, he's, he's in there as aggressively as younger males. So, um, but, uh, that's because I've only been, uh, I've only had the koi for like 20 some years. Uh, that's about the oldest koi that we've had, but I've heard of them 35 years old. Um, some, you know, there was a nursery or something that got their koi robbed and they, they, Hey Rob, that's your name. And they uh, they said that their fish were 35 years old. So I know they can live that long. But, I didn't do it. Uh, we do. You didn't do it. We see. Um, I see uh, skin cancer quite a bit in some of the koi as well, like skin blemishes and the UV exposure. How do you, know, you treat normally, that? Well, you 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 can't really. I mean, you could you know you can uh, dip them with uh, iodine or or anything like that, or kind of scrape it off, but. Um, now koi are not meant to like we keep them in very clear water ponds and uh, some people don't have a lot of shade in their ponds shades is is pretty important for koi uh, that I see that koi that are kept in clear water with not a lot of shade their colors will will decrease and and one one way that I did this was uh, I would keep koi outside in the pond for the summer where we bred them but then those special fish that were growing we would keep those inside and there was less sun in the building. And it seems like sun breaks down the keratins or the color in their skin and, you know, skin cancer and can cause some skin issues. You do see your koi hide during, during the heat of the day. They like to go and hide under the plants or in the shade. So I, I think that uh, that affects them also to try to keep them healthy. You know, as, as my koi started getting 20, 21 years old, you started noticing that their skin was losing some of the luster and, and that uh, quality of the skin was, it was aging, you know, like human, human skin ages. You could tell that the skin was aging and it wasn't healing as, as well as it would when they were younger anyways. But That's fascinating. So I've seen um, a couple different uh, cancers. They're not really, really tumor, but I have seen a couple um, other under-the-scale cancers. And as far as their treatments, you know, number one, like you said, shade prevents it. But right. I don't know about koi. Koi, again, have a different type of uh, reaction to a lot of different treatments. But you can certainly talk to your veterinarian uh, about if you have other large fish with the uh, same issue. And they'll help you give uh, injections. And they have a uh, like a scrape treatment they do. But, again, I would not um, consider doing that to your fish unless you've right. talked to your local veterinarian. Leave it for the professionals. And right. Yeah, we used to we used to uh, do when you know fish had problems. We'd do uh, antibiotic injections, and we'd do some different things with them. And and uh, you know, in, in a tumor situation too, like uh, ovarian tumors or some kind of cysts, I think like you said, it's better to have a veterinarian. Can if you wanted to, you could do surgery on that fish and take that cyst out. And uh, it depends. Um, sometimes I've seen where. Um, uh, it's, I've had tumors the size of my fist come out of a fish and the tumor will just grow so large that eventually it pushes out, um, uh, it'll push out the organs 
uh, you know, and it'll just the, the fish will die from organ failure simply because, uh, you know, it's it just pushed out, took up so much space. But uh, one other fish we had, um, the fish it was just bloated, and, and I know I I can feel the fish, and I kind of know whether it's a tumor or whatever. The fish is real soft in the abdomen, and I knew that it had a tumor, something was blocking it, but I I couldn't tell, um, you know, why was this fish living so long, and. It ended up, I do an autopsy on any fish that dies, and the fish had a tiny tumor. But what the tumor was doing, it was blocking, it was blocking, I'm not enough of a fish doctor to know, but it was blocking something, and the fish was producing large volumes of blood. So it's, it's the reason the fish was bloated up was it, it was body cavity was full of blood. And the, the only reason I can think that fish lived so long is the amount of blood that it had also meant that it had a lot more white blood cells and that contributed to uh more immunity from or more ability to fight whatever it was but that fish lived but it was like i said it bloated up quite large but so there's uh, a, the other problem we have go ahead i apologize there's a lot of uh, resources online and I, I believe i've used a couple in the past like koi com and right there's a ways to treat bigger animals than there is smaller and you know Oh, my veterinarian only does is cats and dogs. Well, you'd be surprised if you talk to them what treatments they would offer and different uh, medications that you can um, feed to them orally to try to help, uh, you know, boost or, or prevent uh, some issues. But um, tumor treatments, especially like you, you said before, you had one of your fish where the ovary popped right out. Well, in some right. situations, you'll see um, a large, particularly like a 30-inch koi, have this massive growth in this lower region and that, uh, especially later in their life either they're egg bound or like you said have uh, ovarian tumors and there are procedures where it's literally clove oil to treatment for anesthesia open it cut the koi stitch them back together you know treat with hydrogen peroxide and stuff can be done so don't uh, right. just assume that these particular animals are you know it has a tumor there's nothing i can do and, and write it off there is treatments there is help and uh, certainly look those up i know again koi vet there's a lot of uh, helplines, YouTube videos, but again, veterinarians don't just rule them off because all oh, they just work on cows. Right. Yeah, we have a vet. Um, a vet came to our uh, our pond club. He joined our pond club, and, and would come and, and talk to people, and and it's very valuable information. And the other part of uh, about uh, female koi is hormones affect spawning quite a bit, and if the hormone levels are high in the pond, uh, a female koi won't want to spawn, and that can lead to egg impaction. So it's good for people to do water changes on a regular basis and dilute those hormones. A lot of people say, I've never seen my koi spawn, my koi's fat, why won't it spawn? It might just be, you know, that a lot of people, they don't do water changes. They just top the pond off. It's just like an aquarium. If, if the water evaporates and you just keep topping it off, you're not getting rid of the pollutants. You're not diluting anything. So it's really important for koi's health uh, and fish health in general to dilute those and give them fresh water changes on a regular basis. This happens in a lot of different species. There's a expert, Gary Lange, and he's known as the uh, king of rainbow fish. He's done a lot of research and one of the uh, you know few gems that really inspired a lot of different species to come to the aquarium trade. And he'll document these fish in their natural habitats, try to follow breeding cycles, color patterns, and notice that, you know, every time after a rain is the most common time and, of course, you know, temperature, moon alignments. But rain is the biggest factor for a lot of fish, especially in the Amazon, that, again, dilute those hormones. Right. 
and pH shift too from from the rain uh, will also affect fish. Um, sudden changes in pH uh, will definitely drive spawning. And I, most people, I don't know if uh, they know how koi spawn, but a female koi, when she wants to spawn, it's a, a completely voluntary. They release a hormone from their pituitary when they decide to spawn, and that starts that starts the eggs into a labor process. Where and is the pituitary on, gland located on the koi itself? That's, um, medulla oblongata, somewhere <laughs> up there in the brain. Kumbaya. Uh, so is it similar, just for, for my benefit here, is it similar to goldfish where you actually see the spots on their gill plate? Um, they'll, male koi will, will definitely get a raspiness to their gill plates. Um, not as pronounced as goldfish. Goldfish is definitely visible, like white little prickly things. Um, very similar to, we have... Um, um, minnows at the farm also, and minnows get this prickly things all over their heads, male minnows, but um, the, the, the goldfish will definitely get those, but koi, koi is just more of a raspiness uh, to, their, to their gill plates, and as soon as that female releases the hormone, the males will definitely just start chasing around like, hey, it's go time, and she'll be like, no, no, wait, I just started labor, you gotta, you gotta wait, but um, they'll typically, so, you know, it Barometric pressure uh, affects them too. So as we talk about that rainstorm and rain's coming, before the rain even comes, they know they, the, the precursor to that is that barometric pressure shifts. And they'll, they'll, somehow they'll sense that. Uh, you know, a koi have a tremendous lateral line, a ray, a sensor. And I tell people it's like, um, you know how our new cars have all those backup sensors that you just have the thing that tells you you got something near this or something near that. I, I'm not sure how koi see. I see they see like uh, the comic book character Daredevil where he taps the stick and sees the vibrations. There you go. Uh, that, wow. You know, yeah. There's finally it, it, use you know, for that movie. Well, compared to compared to way, the way we see, koi might actually think we're blind. Sure, they can see with their eyes, but I think that they feel the environment more than anything because they're a river fish. And like we were talking about with sun damage, they're meant to be like swimming in the river with darkened waters, can't see anything. Digging in the mud? Digging in the mud. They will sense worms and crayfish digging in the mud by the vibration underground. Um, so that's one way. But anyways, how that leads to, to the barometric pressure, I'm not sure how they sense that barometric pressure, but that will then get them to a rain's coming. They'll, they'll go ahead and release the hormone from their pituitary. So that way when the rain comes and potential flooding, like what we've got going on at the farm right now, that they will uh, be ready to lay those eggs and be right there at the optimum time. But a female can hold her eggs if she decides, I'm not laying my eggs, something's not right. She will hold her eggs and won't lay them. But uh, we can, um, they do sell a carp pituitary extract where they sell that hormone and you can inject a koi and we we've tried that before where uh you inject it but it's like three hundred dollars a bottle to do that Jeez. to inject a yeah to inject a koi uh, and we've tried doing that the artificial spawning method where you put the koi's you you got to dry them all off and you put the koi's eggs uh in a bowl and then you strip out the male and you put his sperm with them and you stir it all up and there's a special way to do it we do have one uh, fish that we've still got that we we did an artificial spawning with that we put it the eggs in a tank so we knew okay this is how we did it so uh, we've tried that too but that you can do that artificially but I, I try to spawn our fish all natural every year we just try to do it naturally 
they always go out to 100% fresh water and they've been cooped up in the, in the fish building all winter. So they go out to that fresh water. I can guarantee the fish will spawn within 24 hours unless there's something physically wrong with that fish. So, so I, during breeding, do you use say, um, breeding mops? What, what, what other tools do you use to, uh, make sure that's, uh, accomplished? Right. So I've, I've invented my own. Um, there's some, some product that we use like, um, filter brushes or uh, not filter brushes, but there's a, there's a green filter, uh, a green spawning rope that's commercially sold. That's a really good rope. Um, but then I've invented my own, um, because that's uh, fairly pricey and I need so much of it. You know, when we're doing spawning, we'll have, uh, typically a quarter acre pond. We'll, we'll need to throw eggs from about five or six females into that. And that'll be over three or four days. And so, um, I need, I need almost 30 foot long by, by two foot wide worth of spawning ropes, which gets expensive. So I came up with, uh, what I call the Bickle bio rope which we use for spawning. And around here, they have big round bales of hay. And I've got an example of them on my website, but they take, uh, this is a plastic mesh that comes out of the machine and wraps around a big bale of hay. Well, when the farmers are done with it, they wrap it up into a ball, they throw it in a pile and they burn it, which we don't like seeing people burn junk around here, but that's pretty typical. I came up with this, this rope that I would pull this out and my wife taught me how to crochet. So I would use my hand as a loop and I would crochet this into a rope and it turns out to be really good filter material. And I started using this filter material first and then I started using a spawning material. And it's got all kinds of little fibers in it and it really mimics um, natural aquatic plant growth underwater. And so I use that uh, quite extensively when I'm spawning because it's big long ropes and we stake those out in the pond and uh, it, it keeps the fish's eggs uh, nice and far away so that when, you know, we don't get a lot, the fungus is a big problem in fish eggs. So, uh, you want to keep the eggs as far away from each other as possible so that a fungus does happen. You don't get too much of it going on and kill the, kill the whole batch of eggs. But so I'm that's what we use primarily. I'm actually on your website right now and you have a full tutorial on your bio rope. Uh, full go, tutorial. Go ahead. It's again, Bacall, that's B-I-C-K-A-L.com. And underneath the category, um one second here diy you have a section called bio rope and you even have a video on there explaining in detail and do you right. sell this to the public i don't sell it anymore because it just takes uh so long to to braid it up and to go out and collect it from the farmers the other reason why i didn't want to sell it is had i gotten a bad batch say a, a farmer had maybe some a weed killer or something that accidentally leaked onto that um so we didn't want to sell it just in case we didn't get it clean enough and I didn't want the liability uh, that came along with, with selling it. But uh, it's excellent uh, filter material. It, it's, it's got a high void space to surface area uh, for bacteria to grow. So it's excellent filter material as well as a spawning material for, for the fish. So it, it, just, it just really works really well. And it's, as you look for material, um, a lot of times it's fairly expensive. And bacteria will grow on anything so uh it, as as a way to recycle uh, uh something that the farmers would normally burn i could go get it and recycle it so that's one thing i try to be uh environmentally conscious i guess and re recycle reuse when i can so well that's fantastic so before we leave the process so again we went through um the, the breeding process and do you ever have issues I, i've heard with uh, koi breeders about jumps like if you're in a normal you're in a not normal size you're in a 
large pond space for where you do breeding. But uh, do you have any jumping issues or stories? Right. So, so we did have a problem this year. We had a fish die. Um, so I was talking about the hormone levels in the pond. And we, we do spawnings in order, but we've only got a few, a few spawning ponds here. We've got like four, four ponds here, each of them about 25,000 gallons to spawn in. And we had set up a pond. Um, we want the female to spawn. I couldn't get the female to spawn because the hormone levels are getting too high. So when that happens, we do water changes. We try treating the water with certain things to, to burn the hormone off. And I couldn't get the female to spawn. So we threw her in an empty pond with uh, three males right away, boom, she spawned. Normally we would hatch in that pond, but we just, oh, we'll throw her in there and we'll spawn her out that way. She started spawning. I caught her up and I moved her to the big pond because the big pond had uh, uh, more of the specialized fish that I wanted to breed her with. Well, the male that was in there, it was a, it was probably 20 inches, um, uh, sparkly scales, just, it wasn't a, a show fish or anything, but it, it would have made nice babies. That fish went crazy looking for her. He could smell her. He was swimming all around the pond. Where's this female at? He's wanting to spawn with her. He can't find her. He ends up, I was in with a customer and, um, you know, cause I went out there and I saw the fish swimming around funny and he was, he was looking all over for the female and I was like, I'll catch him later and throw him back in the big pond. I came back out later and that fish had jumped out. He, he just looking his quest to find that female. He had jumped out and I tried CPR on the fish. Um, I tried uh, mouth to mouth to mouth resuscitation on you. Know, you just blow air. Yeah. Yeah. We did uh, one time we had a bunch of girls over at the farm and we did a kiss, kiss my koi challenge. And we had that on Instagram. But so anyways, you just, you just Sexy. blow air into their, you know, to get their gills to fluff out a little bit. And then you put them in the water and roll, roll the fish back and forth. Um, and I tried massaging the heart from, from underneath the chest and, and try doing that to do some CPR on it. But that fish must have had a heart attack or something. It just was dead. And normally, you broke its heart, damn it. Is, <laughs> yeah, exactly. it broke its heart. Uh, normally, if a fish is, is, isn't dead until it's really dried up, you know, it, 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 you can put it in the water. And as long as you can kind of any kind of a gill movement or anything on it, you can get it to come back pretty easily. And that fish, it was nothing. I, it, it was still wet. It wasn't, there was nothing I could do for that fish. But uh, we get jumpers on occasion. Uh, and then I, a lot of times I see uh, people building these raised koi ponds. Oh, raised koi ponds with glass walls. And I'm like, you know, koi jump. Uh, it's rare that they'll do it, but they do jump, uh, especially if water parameters change. The pH is a little funny or the nitrites might uh, spike or something happens with your water quality because the rain can really do some funny things with your water. You will get jumpers like that on occasion, but typically we don't have them jump out. But you have to protect them while they're spawning because they will be a little crazy and not pay attention to their surroundings whatsoever when they're spawning. So you want to make sure that a lot of people have skimmers in there. You want to make sure that the skimmer is, is blocked so that the koi won't accidentally just fall into that when they're spawning and get stuck in there and die. So, so again, just to go through the whole process, you, you breed. You're using your own spawning ropes. Um, yep. You have... Again, Daphnia ponds essentially that you've you prepped and prepared. Are you creating your own right. Daphne cultures, or is that something yes. that's just natural? Yeah, we have some tanks that are just set up for Daphnia cultures. Uh, our seed tanks. Uh, we don't do anything else with the tanks. Um, so then uh, we just fill them with wall water, and we'll put some fertilizer in there to get them started. And then we'll we'll transfer cultures around. And so then once once a pond has been full and ready to go. 
I can I can start catching Daphne up and usually I can catch almost a pound just scooping a, a net around pretty easily. I've got 800 gallon tanks. Uh, three 800 gallon tanks those are our seed tanks and I can usually catch a pound of Daphnia with just a three or four second scoop around in the pond. That's how much Daphnia will get established. But like I said, you have to be careful too that uh, you don't start getting low oxygen levels or ammonia levels because you can lose the whole batch very quickly. They'll just molt and die and you'll lose it and you'll have to start over. So, but yes, yeah, so we start off with our own Daphnia cultures and then and then you have to time you have to time that Daphnia very specifically to make sure that the Daphnia don't smell the koi and the Daphnia have a good environment to grow and produce so that way they're there when the koi are ready to eat them. But yet you want to have enough Daphnia, I call it critical mass, you want to make sure that the pond, usually you go out by flashlight at night is the best way to see how much zooplankton and, and Daphnia that you have in there as to how much stuff is moving in the water and what's the ratio of water to the Daphnia to, to make sure you have enough in there. But So you grow them out during the summer and when you know when and how do they go to market so they get to i'm assuming that you sell uh, you know as low as three inches right yeah we sell um actually we sell a one to two inch we'll sell we'll sell very small um and then normally we don't sell a fish the first year unless we're having a, an event like this year we had an event and we let people pull fish right out of the mud pond that were were hatched just in may and june so we let them pull fish that were an inch to two inches um, but typically we will grow a fish a whole season and then um, we'll either let it set in the pond uh, over winter uh, is typically the best in the big mud ponds. It, it's, it's pretty healthy to leave them out there all winter. And then um, we'll harvest them in the spring and that's when they'll be available for sale. And on the higher quality koi, we may save out a thousand to two thousand or more depends on the amount of space and the, the demand in the market for larger koi. We'll sell, we'll save out some of the higher quality little koi and we'll grow them to the second season and then we'll make them available in the spring of the next year when they're probably like 12 to 14 inches, uh, maybe nine inches and larger. And, and those ponds, uh, we've got automatic feeders. You fill it with a 50 pound bag and we've got it to kick off on different times to feed the fish just to, just based on how many fish are there and how much feed do they need. I'm trying to make sure we feed them at a, at a steady pace that the, that they're growing, you know, fast but not too fast where uh, you can't afford to you can't afford to feed them uh, that much, you know, to get them to a certain size, you know. So you're in a particular uh, situation where again, most core farmers wholesale, but you also do retail. You'll either sell direct to the customer and then you were saying that you have a retail shop, is that correct? Right. Yeah, we have. That's how we started off. Was was just mainly how I started selling koi. Actually, was um, the first year that we bred koi, we had so many. Uh, we we put the koi out in the pond and they bred on their own. We had so many that we put it in the uh, the penny saver, which is just like a little ad newspaper. We put them in there, and you know, 20 years ago, and we had like we had like 50 to 100 fish that we had, and people came and bought them, and they bought them, took them home in buckets. And next year they called us up and you say, hey, you got more fish? And my friend wants some fish. I'm like, yeah. And so that's how we actually started selling koi uh, was doing it that way. And then as that started becoming popular and people, we, we wanted, like I said, we sold every koi we could produce the first few years. And so then I build another pond. We'll, somebody got rid of a swimming pool. We'll put that up. We'll hatch koi. We try to hatch uh, 500 to 1,000, whatever we could come up with. And we went from selling 50 to 100 to to 400 to 1,000 to 2,000 to 5,000 fish a year. 
is kind of where we've gotten to now. It's just grown every year, and, and like I said, this is the biggest hatch and the most amount of fish. Uh, I've only had this new property, our wholesale property, I've only had it six years, and it was just flat-out pasture grass with a little creek running through it, and I bought it just for the, the water sources that it had there. And now we've got uh, a half-acre pond on there. We've got four quarter-acre ponds and two-eighth of an acre ponds with four more quarter-acre ponds under construction ready to go in the next year or so. So that's how fast we're growing. And now we're trying to really move into the wholesale and find wholesale markets so that we can um, produce a fish two to three inches, um, have it ready that size uh, to, to move in a market, empty a pond out, get another spawn going, because really... Uh, the lure fish are what people are really wanting now. Uh, we used to sell, uh, 10 years ago, we used to sell a lot more larger fish. Everybody at the shows, the koi shows, all wanted larger fish. Uh, now everybody just wants the smallest, cheapest fish they can get. They still want some good colors, and they want the butterfly. So that's kind of the, uh, the shift in the market. Uh, maybe with the market going up and people having a little more money to spend in their pockets, uh, maybe we'll see large fish make a comeback. But... Uh, Growing a fish two to three years to get them to a certain size, uh, you you got to have the market for that. Otherwise, it's not going to be worth your while. So, so what type of koi do you you offer? And again, I, I'm on your website, and you know I've worked with you in the past. I know that you again right. offer the the small mix. That's what you're trying to get for the wholesale. But just so your your customers uh, know that are listening, our potential customers on the the podcast. Again, you have the butterfly koi, but what other types of koi? You said you had showas. Do you have shinrins? What what types right. do you yeah, carry? The, well, we focus our breeding efforts are focused on three 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 different types of koi which are the most popular. We, we focus on the three-color koi, which is the Showa and the Sake. Um, then we also focus on blue koi, which is Asagi and Shishui. And then we, uh, when, then we focus on yellow koi, and um, that's a Yamabuki. And when we breed those kois, we also breed, uh, we crossbreed them with other varieties. So we'll, by breeding a three-color koi, you'll also get um, a white and red koi. Uh, when we breed yellow, we, pr we produce that with uh, a, a, a yellow and white or a yellow, black and white. So you'll get all these different offshoots of the other colors in a mix. So that gives us a really good variety uh, of, of koi to offer. Uh, and those colors, you know, those colors are the hottest selling koi, but then we have all these other uh, varieties there with it, which makes, uh, which makes for a nice mix when people are looking for koi. That's fantastic. So... Um, my, my favorite koi, again, I'm weird. I'm all, uh, all about chagwe just because they are a bit bigger. They have a different type of appetite and they also have a different, uh, attitude. They're generally, um, tea colored, earth toned. Yeah. Do you have any of those just for my own benefit here? Right. <laughs> we do have, um, the problem with chagoy is when you produce, when you produce with a single colored fish and a chagoy is a dark fish. So it's hard putting a pattern on a dark fish. Most people want a pattern fish. Um, the opposite of a chagoy is a sorogoy, which is a silver or a, or a mouse gray koi. And typically you want to breed that koi with a patterned fish. You will get some chagoys. You'll, you'll get a mix of that. But when you breed chagoy, when we, we did uh, several years, we got some jumbo chagoy, which we lost to one of, uh, one of our jumbo chagoy this year because it didn't want to spawn. Uh, we didn't put the koi out to spawn until last because they produce so many just there's no variety there. They're all chagoy. They might be a, a tea colored or a coffee colored chagoy. There's kind of some, some offshoots of the color there, but 
that's all you get is a pond full of chagoy. And so then we'll have way too many chagoy. So we'll breed chagoy one year and then we'll have so many chagoy that we won't really need to breed for three or four years. And that's what happened as we bred chagoy. And then it was like, okay, we got way too many chagoy. Let's not breed those for a few years. And then we've sold all the chagoy. Now people are like, hey, but I want a chagoy. So this year we threw them back into the mix and we'll have chagoy and we also have a sorogoy, which is the gray fish. And then also Ochiba Shiguru, which is a gray fish with a, a bronze pattern, which the Japanese say is like fallen leaves on water. So that's been a real popular fish. And um, doing samplings in the quarter acre pond, uh, we've got a lot of those in there, which some of them are scaled, some are scaleless. Uh, some are the Ginrin, which is the sparkly scales. Uh, we focus a lot on the, the sparkly scaled fish as well. And then do just try to do everything in butterfly. We, we throw butterfly into the mix and that you'll just get everything with a butterfly. So that always works out. Well, perfect. So is there anything that you feel that we, uh, we missed? I feel like we getting, we, we got through the process. We got age, growth, feeding types. I, I feel like we've really dipped into a process that frankly, we don't get a picture of often. We need a part right. two of this eventually too. I think I, there's so much great information here. I, I can't even believe, uh, as I'm taking notes here of all the different things that I've learned this evening. And I think we need a part two again. We need a right. we need a DIY episode of just uh, how to how to do all your tricks. Your website is impressive. Again, that's bicall or bickle.com. That's b i c k a l dot com, and you have an entire library of DIY instructions. It's a wealth of information, and we definitely have to have you on the podcast again. Right. Well, I appreciate you guys having me. And I, I started out originally. Um, I sold. Um, everything that was on my website, I sold in a book on CD. Way back in the day, I used to sell that online. And after I had sold so many thousands of copies of it, I finally just made it available on my website. I'm a full-time software developer. I'm, I'm just a part-time koi breeder. It's a full-time job also, but it's my passion job. So I, I've written my own website. I've done all my, webs my own website work. Uh, when you do websites full-time for a living, you don't try to put too much flair into your own website, I guess. I'm kind of lazy about it, but I try to do uh, everything on the website. There's so many articles out there um, that people can go see, build their own ponds, uh, the proper filtration, and how to make koi uh, low-cost and low-maintenance. So I appreciate you guys having me online, and this has been a lot of fun. So No problem. So one more uh, thing. You also do shows. So what is some of the next shows that we'll be able to see you at? I'm assuming that'll be next spring. Right, yeah. The, the show circuit's pretty much done for this year. And this year we actually just did a, so, a show in St. Louis. And that was the first time we were able to get into that show. We try to get into any show that we can get into as long as it's decent driving uh, distance. Uh, but next year in the spring, um, we'll be looking at the Chicago show, which is usually held in the middle of June. Uh, we try to get into other shows if we can. Uh, there's a show in Louisville, Kentucky, that's uh, in um, May. Um, there's some shows in Colorado in August. We're going to look into that. The show in St. Louis. Um, the show in Minnesota, the funny, the funny story, uh, the place where we used to have the show in Minnesota was at a greenhouse. And we used to also sell koi to them wholesale. Well, they've gotten completely out of koi. They're no longer hosting the Koi show, so they're going to have to find a new spot for that show. But I've heard through the grapevine, don't want to get myself into trouble, that they may be going into the medical marijuana business. 
uh, growing or whatever. That's just some rumor that I've heard. So that's probably going to be more lucrative up there than them hosting our Koi show. So I'm sure they'll find Can't a new blame spot em. for Koi in Minnesota, right? I'm sure they'll find a new spot for Koi in Minnesota uh, next year, and we will definitely be there. Uh, we try, like I said, make it to any show that people have us. I provide Koi at a, a price which I feel, uh, you know, Koi do sell for more money than I sell them for, but I want people to afford Koi, and I say we've got a Koi for every budget. And if somebody's just looking for a cheap Koi, they just want something to start with, we will find them a Koi. It might only be missing one fin but uh, or, or have a scale out of place, but we'll definitely find a Koi for everybody. Hey, hey Greg, I, I got a quick question for you. Uh, Rob's and I just went down to Bloomington, down in Minneapolis, uh, for a koi uh, auction. Auction, yeah. And I've been yes. on I've been on one large uh, koi, and I pushed out and didn't go the whole length. It went for about what was that, Rob? One eighty? Yeah, about one eighty. Anyway, it was a beautiful white and red koi, but it had the most beautiful robin eggs, blue eyes. Right. What? What? And when I'm looking online and stuff, trying to get some information about what is it only the the red and white ones that have the blue eyes? No, um, actually, that's a that's a that's kind of a breeding secret too. Is if the koi has blue eyes, um, when when you're breeding for a, a a white and red koi, if it has blue eyes, most likely in its genetics in its bloodline, it's a three colored koi because the blue eyes are coming from the three colored koi. So as breeders are sorting through their young koi, if they come across um, that blue eyes in a fish that they're trying to produce white and red only, they won't select that fish because they don't, they don't want later as the fish develops, it'll bring up small black spots. Sometimes they're called shimmies, but otherwise it can be spots of different size, but it'll really detract from the beauty of the koi. So sometimes we'll stay away from that. It just kind of when we're sorting fish, we'll look at that and we'll say, hey, you know, we're uh, we're not gonna pick that fish to, to use just because it's gonna not be a good one. But that might have I actually might have been whites in the auction. That's right. It, it could have been a three colored koi and lost its black. Which water quality changes koi. All koi do not look the same. And 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 what fish may look like out in the farm in the very soft water that comes from surface water in the ponds versus the deep well water that we use here at the farm. Um, in our tanks indoors, it changes the fish's look, and sometimes a fish can gain color or lose color based on the water that it's in. Yeah, I so, I just absolutely fell in love with that fish. I kicked myself for not bringing home that fish. Rob's egged me on to go up to two hundred dollars, and I pushed out. So I actually brought home a fish from St. We we went to the St. Louis show this year, and and like I said, we've only got three koi originally left from Japan, and. Um, we we overheard some guys talking at the show that this guy's like I want to sell this koi. We were we were going around the show tanks looking at all the fish. He's like, yeah, I want to sell this one because it's a male. And I was like, oh, hello. And I went over and looked at the koi, and it was a beautiful white and red koi, and it had one um, young champion at the show. So it was it was a show winner. And I was like, I looked at the fish, and I, I was you know, it's a Japanese import, and I was thinking it's gonna be fifteen hundred to twenty five hundred dollar fish, pretty easy, and. I was like, uh, I, I'd definitely buy it from you. Um, we, like I said, we don't typically bring new fish in. We try to keep our quarantine procedures and everything pretty strict. Um, uh, otherwise, we brought in the butterfly, you know, uh, to breed that. But so, anyways, uh, I went back to my booth and you know, we're working selling koi. And the guy's like, "Hey, I think if you offered him two hundred fifty dollars, he'd take it." And I was like, "Sold." <laughs> 
Wow. So uh, that's going to be our new uh, flagship uh, fish anyway, is a male. It's uh, it's a jumbo uh, fish. It's only uh, like 14 to 15 months old. So it's and it's a young male, but it's already like 16 inches long, maybe uh, maybe 20 inches long. I forget. I, I we didn't really measure it when I got home. I just know the tub that it was in. But um, once that fish hits uh, two years old, uh, three years old, he's big enough to put with some of the females. We'll try him out this spring. With we're gonna put him with a white female, and we've got a specific fish that we're trying to produce. It's called Kika Sui, which is a metallic, a metallic white and red fish. So we're going to mix a metallic white female scaleless with this fish and try to produce that and see with his high genetics if we can produce um, his nice pattern on that fish and just kind of work on that. So we do try to work with uh, genetics and I know that maybe a, another trip to Japan might be in my future if we want to really get serious uh, about producing a lot higher quality uh, fish and get some more Japanese offspring. But you would be surprised at auction. I've seen fish go at auction jumbo. Um, like 28 to 30 inch fish uh even with the right people in the room only go for 500 to 600 bucks that's incredible i i have it, one one quick question i i come from the end of the wholesale end of it and did you find it tough to get on the japanese farms i mean i've watched a, a thousand youtube videos and i watched the people cull 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 koi fish and, and i've watched all these these videos but it seems like the guys kind of say uh it's hard to get on these farms unless you know somebody. Do you, have you found that? Uh, absolutely. No, absolutely not. Um, when we went there, uh, we went with a broker, um, as a USA Koi, Mark Bodicott is his name, and give a shout out to him. And he's a great broker. And we went with him and he took us around all these farms. Any farm that you wanted to go, th go to, um, any, anybody that really goes to Japan to look at fish, they're not your average hobbyist. Uh, they're going to know what they're doing. And when we went to one of those farms, they just handed me the net. They went in to drink some tea, and they're like, most people that go there are very experienced koi keeper and are, are looking for high-dollar koi and know what they're doing. Just catch your own fish and, and let them know when you're done and then, and, 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 you know, go through the routine. But, uh, no, we had no problem going. Uh, we were with a millionaire also was in our group, so that might have helped a little bit. But <laughs> we, we were able to go to any, any koi farm that we wanted to. And, and see some really, and it's a very nice experience, I would say, if a person is serious into koi, uh, to go do that once in their lifetime, just just to see um, how a farmer that raises them full time, uh, and that's if they, they typically will focus on one variety and they'll have a trademark maybe in their variety as to what they're gonna produce. Uh, it's really nice to see. And Japanese culture, I've been all over the world, you know, when I was in the military, I've seen France and Germany, and uh, I really appreciated Japanese culture quite a bit. It was very respectful. Uh, you felt very safe, and and I just it was a very interesting culture to see firsthand. And what what was the cost of bringing those fish back back home? Because I know a lot of people always so, go in two thousand four. Yeah, that was yeah yeah in two thousand four. <laughs> if you bought a sixty dollar fish, it was it was going to be another sixty bucks to bring that back home. That's not because that's the not the fish gets shipped. Um, first the fish will get shipped from Japan and it's, it's almost 48 hours to get the fish, um, from when they pack them up on their farm in Nagata all the way to the airport and then to get them to the States. So they'll ship them to the States might be 48 hour trip. And then your, your broker will usually hold those fish and your broker will take a commission off of, off of those sales. So that is, that's factored into the prices. 
but then he will quarantine those fish, make sure they're healthy, and then once they've they've had a, a six to eight weeks or longer to to acclimate, then then he will ship them to you. So that's kind of how the process works. And they ship all their fish. I don't know how they keep it all straight. It's that's probably an, another. Uh, we could go through my Japanese uh, stuff on the website, and that's probably in a whole other podcast. But uh, everybody that goes there to buy fish roan, the dealer just writes down, "Oh, this is where this fish is going." And they don't ship out your fish that day. They ship out their fish all in one big batch. They just box them all up and then they go and ship them off. And that's how they come into the broker. And they always use that, usually do that in the fall. You know, the, the buying season is in the fall in Japan. And then they might ship them like in January or something. So. so if that fish is sitting at the broker and God forbid something happens to that fish, are you still responsible for paying for that fish? Or is that nope, something the broker the fish absorbs? Free and, free and clear. Yep. Uh, th- that'll just be reimbursed to you. Like, um, you don't pay for the fish actually until you get them shipped to you from the broker. So, uh, we picked out some fish in Japan and they had a, a seven point something earthquake the day after we left, No, uh, two days after we left. And two of the fish that I picked out, one, one was an Asagi, was the blue fish. And another one was, um, a Kujaku, which has a metallic pattern, was a very popular fish at the time. Those didn't make it. And a lot of dealers lost power. And um, uh, you know, earthquake cut off roads, and they couldn't get to their their ponds and their farms, and so um, they lost a lot of fish. But those two fish, I didn't have to pay for. Um, but no, the, you you only pay for what you get. So I I, th- I thought the the Japanese buying experience, I would highly recommend it. It's it's uh, you're gonna see some very top quality fish there, and definitely the culture and having tea with the farmers and eating fruit and. In one instance, um, we went to a, a farm and we got to watch them pull their breeders in, breeding stock and sit and eat curry at their house, you know, take off your shoes and sit on the, the, the floor. And it, it was just a wonderful experience. I would definitely recommend it. Well, again, Greg, thanks uh, for uh, everything coming on the podcast. Last thing that I have is, do you? Uh, I think you have an open house once a year. Is that correct to the public? Yep, that's right. Yep, our open house is... We, we've tried it on Mother's Day weekend, and some people want to shop, some people don't. We've tried it on Labor Day weekend, and so now we just pick the weekend in between. It'll always be the weekend between Mother's Day and Labor Day. Perfect. Well, certainly give uh, give a call and shout out. Um, Bickle.com, that's B-I-C-K-A-L. The number's on the website. You can order fish directly from the website, direct to your home. There's a uh, whole shipping information. There's a a library of DIY and help articles. Um, Greg, thanks for your time. And do you have anything else for our viewers? That's all I got to say, guys. Thank you and enjoy. Awesome. Again, uh, thanks so much. And, you know, give us a call. Our number's in the bottom of our website, aquariumguyspodcast.com. And be sure to go out, Find your favorite podcast provider, whether it's Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and hit that subscribe button to make sure to send notifications to your phone when these come out. We try to do them once a week. Sometimes we'll do uh, two a week. You never know. We're going to send them out to you. Make sure to like and subscribe. And share this with a friend. Share this out to your fish community. And darn it, we're going to get Jimmy into Twitter. Oh, I can't wait for Twitter. Hey, Greg, a special thanks again for sharing all your knowledge, your enthusiasm, uh, for being a hobbyist and uh, businessman. I really appreciate it. I found this so fascinating. I want you back, man. 
So if uh, we thank can, you. if we can bend your arm, uh, maybe we'll do another future podcast with you. I know, uh, I know it's been fascinating for me and I know Rob is just sitting here. He's taking notes down as fast as he can write them. You know, you maybe, bet. thanks guys. Maybe we can go uh, on a limb and, uh, see if we can do one at, uh, at your farm when it's convenient for you, sir. We'll see. And right. Y- yep. Do we'll details in the future. Something. Grab some pictures. All right. Sounds good. All right. Podcast out. See you next time.